Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I believe that prayer is the most neglected and abused discipline of believers today. If today, somehow the amount of time we pray were to be shown to everyone in this church, I doubt if anybody would walk out of here with their head up. Knowing that we have access to the throne of God, knowing that we have an advocate, and knowing that he has called us to prayer, it is impossible for me to imagine why all of us as believers are so negligent, so apathetic in the realm of prayer. We have relegated prayer to the secondary and the incidental. We have made prayer the church's ambulance to drive out in a crisis or in an emergency. We have relegated prayer to tragic events, health problems, and not seen that prayer is to be an ongoing part of our lives. We have adopted the mindset that sometimes prayer works, sometimes it doesn't. Most of the times it's just a wild goose chase. It's become our last option, our last ditch effort to try to grab hold of a reluctant God who doesn't really want to hear us anyway. That is the way most people view prayer. They see prayer in an unbiblical way, and yet prayer is the work of the believer. I said a week or so ago that the average pastor in America prays seven minutes a week. And before you get critical of that and start wondering why what's happening to the pastors, I would tell you that the average layperson in America prays three minutes a week. How in the world will we ever have the power of God in our lives and on our churches when we are so pitiful in the area of prayer? And if there's an area that we are most pitiful in, it is in praying for the lost. We remember those for whom it is our duty to pray. We never name them. We never call them out. We never bring the names of lost people before God. And so what I want to do this morning is a, a little diversion from what we normally do. I want to do a topical message about how to pray for lost people. And I want us to take in context what God has said about prayer and specifically how do we apply that to praying for lost people. So instead of preaching this morning, I want to do a little teaching. I want to exercise my role as pastor teacher and, and do a little bit of teaching this morning. Uh, P.T. Forsyth said, Our prayers are to be a continual, conscious, earnest effort of battle against whatever is not in God's will. Now, we are not going to discuss nor debate this morning the difference between the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. This is not a message on predestination and predetermination and election. It is a message bringing those two things together and how it relates to us and how we are to pray for men. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Listen, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, 
we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Heaven is waiting on you and I to get serious about this matter of prayer. And praying for the lost is more than saying, God, save the lost. There are three aspects of praying for the lost. First of all, there is prayer in the direction of Satan. Prayer in the direction of Satan. Hudson Taylor, the great leader of the China Inland Mission, said to Jonathan Goforth, who was trying to reach his province for Christ, Brother, if you are to win this province, you must go forward on your knees. Now turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that we read a few moments ago Ephesians 6 and I want you to see there a pivotal passage on this matter of prayer Ephesians 6 beginning in verse 12 what I want you one of the things I want you to see is at the end of verse 13 Paul says verse 13 therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm then if you'll drop down to verse 18, for it says, With all prayer, notice now, just read this together. Having done everything to stand firm with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. What Ephesians 6, 12, 13, and 18 are is a combined thought. Verses 14 through 17 can be seen as a parenthetical statement. It is an amplification of verse 13. It is Paul expounding on what it means to put on the whole armor of God. But his conclusion is, we put on the armor of God to pray. We do not put on the armor of God to go out and work in the church. We put on the armor of God so that we can stand and pray. Prayer is the key offensive weapon in spiritual warfare. It is not a defensive weapon. It is an offensive weapon. And we put on the armor so we can stand and pray. Witnessing, evangelism, visitation is nothing more than the truck that we drive out to the field to pick up the spoils of war that have been won in the realm of prayer. All we do on Monday night is what we should be doing if we are biblical is going out on Monday night and reaping what we have planted through prayer all during the week before. It is us going and taking the spoils of war that we have captured from the enemy in the realm of prayer. And so Paul, if you were reading this as Paul was writing it under the inspiration of the scripture, verses 14 through 17 is parenthetical. It is an amplification of verse 13. And 13, verses 12, 13, and 18 all tie together. And it tells us that prayer is the battleground for warfare. Prayer is the battleground. And our victories are decided, first of all, and primarily on the field of prayer, the direction of Satan. And there are two things that you need to understand. First of all, you need to understand the condition of the sinner. What condition is a lost man in? You have a lost husband this morning. You have a lost son, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a mom or a dad. What condition are they in this morning? What is their state of existence right now? 
two things about their condition. First of all, they are bound by the devil. Bound by the devil. Turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. They are bound by the devil. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him, to do his will. That little phrase, held captive, at the end of verse 26, means that Williams translates it uh, more accurately. It means to be taken alive. They are prisoners of war. They have been caught. They have been held captive. They have been taken alive, bound up by the enemy, and we are to work and pray that God may grant them repentance and they may escape from the snare of the devil. They are bound up by the devil. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 2. In whom, talking, he was talking about in verse 1, dead in your trespasses and sin. In whom you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. You walked according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You could translate that little phrase working as energized. You walked according to the spirit that is energized in the sons of disobedience. There are people who are bound by the devil. Now they think they're free. The truth is they're in bondage. They think because they do what they want to do, go where they want to go, live, act, say, drink, smoke, sell, whatever they want to do, that they are free. What they don't understand is that has put them in bondage. Everything this world and the devil advertises that produces freedom produces bondage and strongholds in our lives. Lost people are bound by the devil. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Famous time in the life of Christ when he was confronted by the Pharisees and they accused him of being of the devil. It's interesting how many times this has come true in the lives of ministers and churches to be accused of being of the devil when they're trying to defeat the devil. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, he comes and says to the Pharisees, talking about casting out demons by the Spirit of God, he says, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now, the parallel passage is in Luke 11. Luke chapter 11 is parallel to this passage in Mark. Luke chapter 11, verses 21 and 22. Jesus has talked about entering the strong man's house. That's a relation because he is talking about devil to the devil and carrying off his property. He's dealing with people who are possessed, owned by demons, by demonic forces, unless he first binds the strong man. And he comes to verse 21 of chapter 11 in Luke, and he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. And when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his 
plunder. Two things that Jesus said about entering the house of the strong man. First of all, that Satan is standing guard over the lost. My friend, if you have a lost husband or a lost relative or a lost friend today, Satan is standing guard over their lives. He is guarding them as his property. They are bound by him. Jesus comes and enters the house of the strong man. He did that first at the cross. He did that universally at the cross. He does it specifically when we respond to the gospel. So Satan is standing guard. Jesus says the first thing you've got to do is realize that Satan's standing guard. The second thing you must understand is before you can set them free, you've got to deal with the strong man. Before you can plunder the house and before you can distribute what he's done, you've got to attack what he's relied on. The cross did that. You have to plunder the house of the strong man. You've got to deal with the strong man. This is no burglary. This is an entrance right through the front door. And Jesus is trying to tell us if you and I want to win the battle in spiritual warfare in the realm of praying for lost people, we must bind the strong man. We must take the captives and set them free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we do that by, first of all, understanding that they're bound. My friends, your lost friends are bound in the grips of Satan himself. And if you see them any other way, you've been misled. They are not good people. They are bound in the grips of hell, and they are going to hell if you don't get in there and plunder the strong man's house. You must understand, your loved ones are not going to get to heaven because they're good and moral and nice and sweet and decent, good southern people. They're going to go to hell if you don't plunder the house of the strong man. They are bound by the enemy. We have buried too many people in this life and said things about them that everybody knew weren't true and known that they never had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not going to church. They are people bound by the strong men who go to church. There are people bound by the strong men who are ministers and ordained as deacons. They are bound by the enemy. You must understand that. You must understand that they are bound. Secondly, you must understand that they are blinded by the enemy. They are bound and they are blinded. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It is imperative for us to understand that people, not everybody's going to heaven. God's not going to save everybody in the end. God's not going to just look away and turn away. God sent his son for one specific reason. You live or die by Jesus Christ. That is the only way of salvation. There is no other way. And if that is not true, then we ought to dismiss and go home. That's true for people that are in your home, in your family, who sleep in the same room with you. It's true for people around the world. They are bound, they are blinded. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and whose case the God of this world has what? Blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul has said natural men can't understand spiritual things. So how are they going to understand it? They're going to understand it when you and I learn how to pray to get them from being bound and to get them from being blinded. There are two things that a lost man needs. 
First of all, he needs emancipation from his bondage. He needs to be set free. He needs emancipation from his bondage. And there are some things, ladies and gentlemen, that God has limited to the realm of prayer. There are some things that God in his omnipotence has said, if you don't pray, I won't do it. God has limited himself in some areas to the realm of prayer. One of those is the freeing of the lost. The freeing of the lost. He says they are bound. What they need is emancipation. Not only are they bound, but they're blinded. What they need is enlightenment. They need enlightenment. The bound need emancipation. The blinded need enlightenment. They need to see that they are lost. They need to see that they are out of fellowship with God. Now, not only is there the condition of the sinner, but there's the conquest of the Savior over Satan, and there are two aspects to that. First of all, it is an absolute victory. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It is an absolute victory. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. While you're turning there, let me read 1 John 3 to you. 1 John 3, 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. It is an absolute victory. He came for one purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2, 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile, hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Him is Jesus Christ. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It is an absolute victory. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. It is an absolute victory. There is nothing else to add to the cross. The cross is the completed plan of God for victory over death, hell, and the grave. And it is our absolute victory that we claim in Jesus Christ. But secondly, because it's an absolute victory, it has to be an appropriated victory. It has to be an appropriated victory. You and I have to appropriate it. And so if you would turn to Matthew chapter 16, and for the next few moments we're going to be in Matthew 16, 17, and 18. Matthew 16, verse 19. And we have let an element of Christianity steal this from the Baptist church until we are helpless because we do not understand what God has said in this realm. This is not, my friends, a charismatic truth. This is a biblical truth. It's not reserved for one little group of people who are out there trying to use it. It's reserved for the body of Christ wherever you might be. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Look at Matthew 17, 19. Matthew 17, 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? 
talking about a demon in verse 20. He said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. What Jesus has said is, I have an appropriated a delegated authority that whatever Jesus has bound is bound. And whatever he sets free and loose, sets loose is set loose. I have an authority to command whatever stands in the way of the will of God to be moved. Now friends, you and I sit like paupers before a king who holds the key to every door of death, hell, and the grave. We need to understand that anything that stands against the will of God, you and I as believers, as one believer, you have the authority delegated to you because of the absolute victory of Christ. There is an appropriated victory that's given to you that you can stand against whatever stands against the will of God and tell that thing to get out of the way. Now that can be the devil, it can be a demon, it can be a physical activity, it can be an emotional problem, it can be anything. Now I know what some of you are thinking because you watch too much sorry theology on TV. I'm telling you that Jesus is either true to his word or he is a liar, and if he's a liar, he is of the devil. Jesus said, what you bind on earth, twice he said on earth, I'll loosen, I'll bind in heaven. What has been bound is bound. What is loosed is loosed. We do not go before a reluctant God trying to twist his arm to save our lost friends and family. It's not like, God, I don't think they're in the group. And if you just change your mind and let them go to heaven instead of going to hell, I'd appreciate it. It is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And when you name the name of a lost person before God, all you're doing is saying, God, I'm taking you at your word. It's not your will that anybody goes to hell. And friends, it is just as much heresy to say that God sends people to hell for his glory as it is to say anything. God doesn't send people to hell. God sent his son to the cross so people wouldn't have to go to hell. People choose to go to hell. But they will choose that, one reason, because we don't understand that they're bound and blinded. And we don't understand that the victory of Christ is an absolute victory and an appropriated victory, that we go before God and deal with Satan just the way Jesus did. Why do you think Jesus left the example for us to say, it is written, why don't you think he gave us a dissertation on how to deal with the devil? All Jesus ever said when he dealt with the devil was, it is written. All he ever did was tell the devil what God said. You see, you need to deal with the devil the way Jesus dealt with him. After all, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, lives within you so you can deal with him the way he dealt with him. It is an appropriated victory. Now, there are three laws of prayer in Matthew chapter 18. And I don't see how I'm going to get through with this. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound, past tense, already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. All he's saying is, I'm going to tell you, you get in on prayer and it's, you're going to get in on what I've already planned to do all along. What he planned to do? Save the lost. Truly I say to you. Isn't it bad that Jesus had to say, truly I say to you? 
What he's saying is, now I want you folks to understand, I'm telling you the truth. Isn't it sad that Jesus had to tell religious people he was telling them the truth? Verse 19, again I say to you that if two of you agree, that word agree in the Greek is the word symphoneo. What does that sound like to you? Choir? Symphony. Symphoneo. Symphony. It means to sound together. If two of you will be in symphony with one another, if two of you will be in harmony with one another, if two of you will agree with one another, sound together with one another about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered into my name, in the name of Jesus and everything that that means, there I am in the midst of them. Three laws of prayer. Matthew 18 through 20. First of all, believers have been given the power of binding and loosing. Believers have been given the power of binding and loosing. You may have not been a Christian three days. You may have been a Christian 60 years. But my friends, you have been given the power of binding and loosing. That is not a gift. It is a right of the believer to bind and loose. Secondly, believers tap into that power by prayer. Tap into that power by prayer. That word agree, symphony, symphoneo. Thirdly, believers are assured of the presence of Christ when they agree in prayer. Believers are assured of the presence of Christ when they agree in prayer. There is no time that God is more real than when believers are agreeing together in prayer. Christ's presence is manifest when we agree in prayer. Spurgeon said, if Jacob can prevail over a wrestling angel, what can two do? What victory would come to two joined in the same wrestling? God grant to each of us a praying partner. So we go before God. We understand that Jesus died for the lost. We understand that the Bible tells us that those people have been given the privilege of asking Jesus to come in their lives, and we pray and claim them in the name of Jesus. The, world, the Word tells me that their sins have been forgiven. They just have got to accept it. Their sins have been forgiven at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we come before God not praying for our will that they be saved, but for God's will that they be saved. We are praying and interceding that God will have his will on earth as it is in heaven. And God's will for creating man was that man might have fellowship with him, and you can't have fellowship with him until you're saved. So God, we are just getting in on what God is saying, and when we do that, we bust through every barrier and blockade that Satan ever throws in our path. Secondly, there is praying in the direction of the saints. Now, I'm just going to talk about that for just about two minutes. Praying in the directions of the saints. Matthew 9, 37 and 38 says very simply, Pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers unto the harvest. Brethren, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray in the direction of the saints of God. If Jesus were going to speak to a Southern Baptist church and update this, he'd say, we've got to get 20% of the people to quit doing 80% of the work and 80% of the people to enjoy it. We've got to get 100% of the people out doing the work. That's what he would say. Pray in the direction of the saints of God. That does not mean that you and I are excused from witnessing to our family and to our friends. In fact, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says that a wife can win her husband in her quietness. See, you and I are given the responsibility to witness in our sphere of influence. 
in our concentric circle, we are given that responsibility of sharing the gospel with those people. But sometimes, as God's people begin to pray, God moves and he sends a Philip to talk to an Ethiopian eunuch as he did in Acts 8. God sends a Peter to talk to Cornelius as he did in Acts 10. God moves in his saints to raise up people to go and talk to somebody about Jesus Christ. Sometimes you are unaware of it. Sometimes you don't even understand. But one of your prayers needs to be that God will put in the path of your lost friends and family members people who love Jesus Christ and share the gospel. By the way, somebody's praying that you'll love Jesus Christ and share the gospel with somebody that's going to hell that they know. Thirdly, praying in the direction of the Savior. Praying in the direction of the Savior. And I want to say a few things about the name of Jesus. First of all, the name of Jesus identifies us with him. The name of Jesus identifies us with him. We are co-intercessors. God has given us the privilege of prayer to be a co-intercessor with Christ for the lost. Secondly, the name of Jesus sanctifies your prayers. Now, I don't mean by saying that, that your prayers are all sanctified and are all in the will of God if you just end your prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. Because the name of Jesus has to do with everything that Jesus was and everything that Jesus is. It sanctifies our motives. It sanctifies our words. It sanctifies our requests when we pray in the name of Jesus. Thirdly, it is the name of authority in heaven. Now, brother, if you want to get something done, you use somebody's name who's in authority. Have you ever discovered that in the physical realm? You drop somebody's name who's in authority and all of a sudden you get more attention? I had a problem with a retail establishment a number of years ago and I couldn't get a piece of equipment that I had purchased from them straightened out. And when I happened to mention to that salesman who was very rude to me that I knew Mr. So-and-so who was the executive vice president in their Atlanta headquarters, all of a sudden his total tone changed toward me. I mean, I got respect, I got royal treatment, I got everything, I was escorted wherever I needed to go. You would have thought they had rolled out the royal carpet for me. Why? Because I used the name of somebody who was in authority. The name of authority in heaven is the name of Jesus. That is the name on which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Jesus said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Peter and John never said, hey, we're apostles. See our ordination papers? They said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. In Acts chapter 16, verse 18, Peter commanded the demons, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. If you want to pray with authority, you're going to have to pray in the name and the power of Jesus. Fourthly, it is a name of protection. Just write down this reference if you would. Psalm 44, verse 5, it is a name of protection. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. George Mueller said, it is not enough to begin to pray, nor to pray right, nor is it enough to continue for a time to pray, but we must patiently, believing, continue in prayer until we obtain an answer. Now, here's where we get in trouble. Leave the wind where and how to God. Do your part and let God do His. 
Leave how it's going to happen. Don't sit down there and tell God who to send and when to send and how to do it. You leave the when, where, and how to God. You just do your part and you pray. As D. Gordon said, without a doubt, we may assure the conversion of those laid to our hearts by such praying. The prayer in Jesus' name drives the enemy off the battlefield of man's will and leaves him free to choose right. Turn, if you would, finally to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I want you to see two animals. Revelation 5, 5 and 6. And one of the elders said to me, talking to John, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Who do you think the lion is? Who is it? You think the lion is Jesus? That's a good choice. Verse 6. And I saw between the throne, he changes images, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. Who do you think the lamb is? Jesus is the lion, and he is the lamb. The lion is the fact of redemption. But that fact is built on the foundation of redemption, and the foundation is on the lamb slain before the world ever came into existence. The lion and the lamb, what he is saying there, and you ought to write it down, the victim became the victor so you can have victory. The victim, the lamb was slain, became the victor, the lion who has overcome so that you as a believer can have victory and bind on earth what has been bound in heaven and loose on earth what has been loosed in heaven. Frazier said these words, Satan's tactics seem to be as follows. He will first of all oppose our breaking through to the place of real living faith. By all means in his power, he detests the prayer of faith, for it is an authoritative notice to quit. We often have to strive and wrestle in prayer before we attain this faith, and until we break right through and join hands with God, we haven't attained to real faith at, God, at all. However, once we attain to real faith, all the forces of hell are impotent to annul it. The real battle begins when the prayer of faith has been offered. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.